As past listeners to our show may well know, we are committed to telling stories about Burma Dhamma on this platform. In my own personal experience, the deeper I go into my own learning, the more I discover there is to learn within this broad field. We're committed to authentically relaying stories to our listening audience that explore a diversity of topics illustrating the depth and breadth of Dhamma practice and Buddhist culture in the Golden Land. We are also always open to new suggestions. So if you would like to suggest a topic or theme that you feel is worth examining on future episodes, please be in touch with us. And with that, let's get on to today's show. This is the second episode in our series exploring Filipino meditators affected by the Dhamma of the Golden Land. If you haven't heard the previous show, I recommend you take a moment to do so now. In this current episode, we tell the story of just one Filipino meditator, Raymond Riviera, or Mun for short. Mun is a special guy, and I kind of consider him the Johnny Appleseed of Filipino meditators. For those non-Americans who may not get the reference, Mun is a guy freely spreading seeds of Dhamma for many in his community to plant and grow, like Johnny Appleseed did with apple seeds across the early American landscape. Mun and I have been in touch for a number of years. He was one of the earliest followers of my blog nearly a decade ago now. Knowing him a bit better now, I realized why he was so attracted to our, at the time, fledging site. His thirst for Dhamma knowledge animates his overall spiritual practice. On a recent trip to the Philippines, I finally had the good fortune of meeting up with Mun at a Manila cafe inside one of the new modern malls in Makati. Mun is a dedicated practitioner who serves as a kind of nexus of Dhamma activity in the country. While there are thousands of Filipinos living throughout Myanmar, most are working in some capacity or another, with only a small minority who travel there primarily for the Dhamma. Mun is one of those few. He's taken several trips to the Golden Land, undertaking his own personal pilgrimages to train at a handful of monasteries to then bring back his newfound wisdom and experience to his homeland. Through the several Facebook pages and group forums he manages, he answers questions, shares information, and encourages others in his community to make their own spiritual journeys. So when we had the idea to do a podcast series on this topic, Mun was naturally one of the first people that came in mind to speak with. He was quite helpful in talking through the possible guests to have on and assisted with personal introductions to those people. And of course, we couldn't do a series without hearing from Mun himself. So I'm very pleased to now bring you his story. Today's episode is sponsored by Motu. He dedicates it to families and colleagues at the Royal Dutch Shell Company. I'm here with Mon Rivera. Welcome to the Inside Myanmar podcast, Mon. Hello, Zach. Good morning. It's morning here in the Philippines. 
Great to have you here, Mon. So yeah, we're here to talk to you about Dhamma in the Philippines. And uh, well, I won't I won't give away the the storyline, but yeah, there's an interesting story we'd like to hear from you today. Ah, all right. <laughs> I'm happy to be here to share also our experience in the Philippines and to show gratitude to the um, Myanmarese people uh, because uh, the kind of meditation that I practice is basically influenced by uh, the Burmese traditions. Great. So, Mon, what was your what was your upbringing like? Uh, Philippines is uh, predominantly a Catholic country. So, what was your familial religious background? I would probably be uh, considered a typical Filipino in the sense that uh, I was brought up as Catholic. We are 90%, I think, Christian and 80% are Catholics. The other 10% are Protestant. So actually, I uh, studied in a uh, Roman Catholic school during my elementary years. I shifted to a government uh, school but when I went back to college, I was enrolled again in a Jesuit school, a very strongly uh, Catholic background. Uh, we studied theology, philosophy, so I'm, I was well-versed with uh, the Catholic religion. Uh-huh. And I would say that my family took our religion seriously. I remember my mom, you know, even when we were little, every evening she would make us kneel down in front of an altar and we would recite the rosary. And there I was maybe, I can't remember when I started. Probably I was five years old when we started doing this. And the whole family would uh, gather in front of the altar. And we would really pray the rosary in unison. And we kept doing that until uh, maybe I was in college where I wasn't with my mother and father anymore. I was uh, studying separately, but I was with my brothers and sisters. So, yeah, I was well-versed in the Catholic faith, and for me, it was, uh, I consider it as a great stepping stone. I did learn a lot of things. There's a lot of great stuff in the Catholic religion. Right, so it sounds like a fairly typical Filipino upbringing in Catholicism. What was your first contact and interest with something that's non-Catholic or non-Christian even? I was quite familiar with Muslim communities in our place. Actually, where I grew up, it was a Muslim area. I actually grew up in Brunei. Uh, my parents went to work there. Uh-huh. And I was familiar with some of their uh, beliefs. And I was impressed, actually, with some of their practices like, you know, no drinking, no smoking. And they really kept to it. And then they had this uh, regular fasting uh, for one month done every year. Right. So I was interested in finding out more about them. And when I went back to the Philippines for my college, you know, I already had this open-mindedness about uh, looking into other religions. Uh-huh. And I think what brought me to... Um, explore uh, the Indian religions is my involvement in the martial arts, you know. <laughs> uh, we had some kind of yoga training and meditation, and I wanted to go deeper, so I explored uh, mantra meditation. Uh-huh. Probably the first practice I did was a so-called Christian meditation, because I was still Catholic then. Right. Then I discovered that, hey, this priest, he learned this technique from an Indian guru. 
So I said, okay, why don't I go to the source? And I tried mantra meditation for a while. Did you find someone there in the Philippines or was this on the internet or how did you access that kind of teaching? Oh, there was a, a student of, uh, sorry, I forgot the name, uh, Lawrence, Father Lawrence, Lawrence something. He came to the Philippines, I think this was around 1991, and he set up a group. They call it now a Christian Meditation Group. And uh, first I took a workshop with him and then I joined the group sporadically. But much of the time I was doing it on my own. Meditation was not that popular in the Philippines. Very few people uh, wanted to study meditation. They were more into prayer and other stuff, rituals. No? Right. And I was with my family during the first seminar. And they said, oh, this is kind of boring. But, <laughs> and they dropped out. <laughs> yeah, they called it boring, you know, sitting there quietly. But I, I persisted. But I didn't make too much progress then. Right. But it was, it was a relatively easy transition because it was meditation. That's how to say it. It was couched in Christian terms or prepared to be delivered for, uh, and practiced by Christians. Yes, yes, you can say it that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so what point did you go beyond the, the Christian meditation and actually start to engage in Buddhist meditation or Hindu meditation more directly? How did that transition happen? Well, actually, it opened my horizon. I was still clinging to my Christian faith, but I was more open-minded then. And I explored other modalities. I even went into local shamanism. Uh -huh. We had what we call oration. It's like power meditation, you know, something like uh, shamanistic. It's uh, calling on spirits and, you know, using chants to, for protection to uh, develop power, stuff like that. So for me, meditation was something more about acquiring power, strengthening yourself. No? And it was done all in uh, what I would say in, in good faith. I wasn't out to manipulate other people or do harm to them. All I was thinking that was, uh, you know, this is a good way to uh, improve myself. So I went into meditation that would help me develop my martial art prowess. No? Ah, okay. And then one day I had an accident. And I think that was the best thing that happened to me. I lost my job for a while because I was bedridden. I, I broke my Achilles tendon. Okay, serious. And then nothing to do. And a friend told me, you know, I just came from a meditation. It's a Buddhist meditation. It's called Vipassana. I said, what's that? <laughs> Did you try it? And, you know, I had nothing to do. I went to my Vipa course, my first Vipassana course that was organized by the group of uh, SM Gwenka. Uh -huh. And I went to the meditation, took a bus, and I was in crutches. My leg was bound up. Right. And... It was, it was a very mind-blowing experience for me. Wow, so many things that I was looking for in other areas of meditation. I tasted it there. And after 10 days, it's not that a miracle happened. No? I think my leg was already healing at that time. But after 10 days, I, I was no longer wearing my crutches. I just walked out. You know? And I was happy that I was able to walk normally again. Yeah. So from there... I spiraled into uh, what they would call the rabbit hole <laughs> into Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so 
at this point, you're actually not practicing anything Christian. So was this on your family's radar and, and how did they respond to it? Okay. I didn't tell my brothers and sisters and my especially my mom because I knew how they would react. My wife found it a bit weird, but she said it can't be more weird than this stuff that you're going into, you know, the shamanism, you know. <laughs> uh, we do <laughs> we do really weird stuff there. We had I wore amulets, I had long hair, you know, and then I would uh, get up at uh, and uh, chant at six a.m. Every morning and then in the evening, 6 p.m. So I think um, that practice helped me to uh, pave my way to dedicated practice in Vipassana. So anyway, they found it weird, but not uh, as weird as the other stuff that I was exploring. (laughs) My wife said, oh, come on. Okay, just try it once. And then when I came back, she saw that, you know, like something changed. I was more patient. I didn't raise my voice uh, that often. So she saw improvements. So she said, oh, okay. So when I told her, I want to do another course, she said, okay, okay, go, go, go. Uh, <laughs> if it helps you, then go. Right. So it was my wife who uh, supported me first. And then it was easier to explain it to my family. They just kind of tolerate it. Of course, there are moments when they said, oh, come back to Catholicism. You know, don't forget to pray. Don't forget Jesus, stuff like that. So I just... Uh, maintain my silence, no? just waiting for the proper time to explain stuff to them. I'm still waiting, actually. <laughs> Saman, I'm curious for you, was there ever a, a point that was uncomfortable for you, like in in letting go of Christianity? Or what was your relationship? Let me ask it this way. What was your relationship to Catholicism at this point? All right. That's a very interesting uh, point. No? Um, a few years before I encountered Vipassana meditation, I was, I would say, a non-practicing Catholic. I remember one evening, I was trying to summarize what uh, Catholicism was all about, and uh, I was there looking at a book about the Christian doctrine, and I was summarizing the whole plot about Christianity, and I said, I can't believe in this stuff anymore. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. So I stopped considering myself a Catholic. And when I look at the other religions, actually including Buddhism, no, I said they have some grain of truths in them, but there's something uh, flawed about how they present uh, the truth. And I said I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to go into any religion anymore. I said I just can't believe the stuff that they are saying. And then when I uh, attended a 10-day course under Kuengaji's uh, group, it was so experiential uh, and I could experience, observe, and see the truth for myself. And I said, wow, it really blew my mind. I had, I had a lot of experiences there, including a Kundalini experience, which... I almost never got in my yoga and meditation practice and others, but I got it here in the Gwenka course. And I told myself, wow, uh, this is really mind-blowing. And yeah, that was uh, the extent of uh, what I was practicing at that time. Even after the course, actually, I didn't think of becoming Buddhist then. 
because I also was skeptical about two things that uh, Gwen Kaji was talking about. One was rebirth and the other was non-self. So it took me some time before I could wrap my head over those two concepts. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is like for you personally, it, it was more of a, a transition from religion to a practice that wasn't religious rather than uh, moving from one religion to another religion. Yes, I, I was impressed by uh, what uh, Gwenkaji said about uh, the aim of his course. It wasn't to convert people from one religion or uh, one organized religion to another organized religion, but it was uh, the conversion was really about changing from uh, an unha- unhappy state to a more happy state. And that was exactly what I uh, was experiencing, no? Uh, I lost some of my anger, my impatience, and I felt lighter after that course. Yeah. But then it opened the door and it made me rethink about uh, taking a look at Buddhism. At that point, I had no idea about uh, the differences between Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, stuff like that. But I was curious and I started uh, studying and reading up about Buddhism, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that that rooster's really going off in the background here. <laughs> and so, at what point did your your family realize you were you were serious about this? And was it more digestible to them because you presented it as a non religious thing? Uh, what was that at the point where you said you were not with your wife, but with the rest of your family? You were a bit quiet about about what you're doing, but at some point they must have realized what you're doing and that you were very much into it. So how did that go? <laughs> I think, uh, let me tell you a, a funny story. No? Okay. <laughs> One time, uh, my family came, you know, family reunion. And uh, my wife and my three daughters, I have three daughters, they already knew about what happened to me. No? And my family came over. We had lunch together. And you know, before we start eating, it's typical for Filipino family to have a prayer. And since the lunch happened at my home, my sister requested me, can you say a prayer, a blessing? Uh-huh. And then <laughs> I was standing there thinking about what am I going to say? And how, right? Yeah. So instead of the usual prayer, the Christian prayer, thanking God right. for the food, I started showing gratitude for the earth, for the farmers, uh, for the people who uh, prepared the food. And then I even asked forgiveness for the fish and the chickens. <laughs> and at that point, <laughs> at that point, my sister said, hey, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is not a prayer. And then she cut me short. And then somebody else uh, prayed. And then after that, she didn't ask me. She asked my wife and my kids, what happened to Mon? She said. And they explained to her, oh, he's, he's now a Buddhist or something like that. That's how they found out. <laughs> yeah, and how did that go? Um, I think they were too shocked at the time to react. And then when it dawned on them, well, they actually know my personality. I'm a kind of a free spirit. no? So, you know, I do things not really because I, I just want to rebel, no? but because I think I'm doing it right. And I think uh, I've done a lot of things in the past. And they know better than to try to argue against me if I think what I'm doing is right. 
So we just keep a respectful, what should I say, relationship or distance. I think masses. Right. No? It's uh, a Filipino tradition that during Christmas and some other um, events, no, uh, we go to mass. So I go to mass with them. I just don't pray. I don't make the sign of the cross. Yeah. So I respect them and they just keep quiet about my personal uh, beliefs. Right. What they do see is meditation has made me a better person. So for them, okay, it's not that bad. Mon is less hot-tempered now and you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So I think that helped them uh, accept what I was doing. Right. Great. And at that point, you were practicing Vipassana meditation, but I know a little bit about your story. At some point, you had curiosity about more and actually took a trip to Myanmar. So how did that all come about? Ah, okay. I think another good thing happened to me, which can be taken as a bad thing, actually. No, I was doing Vipassana for, I don't know, more than, I can't remember, more than 10 years, I think. And then somehow, I was also joining other Buddhist groups no, in their meditation. There in the Philippines, there's other groups? Yeah, yeah. There's Plum Village, uh, Vietnamese Zen. And then there's a Japanese uh, group, Japanese Zen also. Okay. And then there's a Chinese Zen or Chan. So I joined them uh, just because I want to be in solidarity with fellow Buddhists. I mean, the Buddhists in the Philippines are probably only 1% of the population. And out of that 1%, less than 1% is Theravada. <laughs> so right. that's just a few hundred, no? maybe a, just a thousand people. And I wanted to have a community, a Buddhist community that I had to go to. And I, I really had no choice but to team up with, with, other, with other groups, no? So I was doing meditation with them, but basically, I was doing anapana, sati, and vipassana. I mean, if I was in a Zen group and they said, let's do this kind of uh, technique, and it's similar to anapana sati, out of respect for the tradition, I don't do the body scanning, I, I do anapana sati. Right. So that was what I was doing. Apparently, some people in the Gwenka uh, group, and I, I don't mean to put down any group no you know they they want they want their members to just stick to one method basically the guenka method right and they were questioning why i was practicing other types of meditation and i tried to explain to them you know basically i'm still doing guenka gist method even if i attend these other groups anyway i applied for another 10 day course with the vipassana group in the philippines guenka's group uh-huh I was turned down oh. because they said I was not telling the truth about not practicing the pure Gwenka style or something like that. Uh, that would have been bad. But actually, it turned out to be very good for me because then at that point, I was free to really explore other methods. No? Right. And basically, in the Philippines, when you are talking about Vipassana, there's only two groups you can go to. One is Aimi Contreras group, the Philippine Insight Meditation Community. There's another group now, actually, but uh, at the time when I was banned from Vipassana, that group didn't exist yet. It's a Kalyana Mita Meditation Center. So I said, okay, since I'm no longer with the Gwenka group, I can in all honesty say that, okay, I'm free to explore other techniques and there's no other place to go, but 
either Thailand or Myanmar. I said, well, much of what I've learned is from the Burmese tradition. I might as well go to Myanmar. Right. Hey, can I ask you, so before you got banned, there was some feeling of um, commitment to the actual practice. So even though you were engaging with these other groups, you were still not fully engaging any kind of different practice, right? You just kind of scale it back to just doing Anapana, right? But there was still an, an issue there that got you banned. But what I'm asking about is like there was a definitely shift in, in internal feeling about what and how you can practice. Is that right? Yes. After you got banned, I mean, there's some, it sounded like there's quite a, a shift in, in like some kind of internal feeling. Like you started to take a mental interest and actually engage uh, in practice with, with more of a variety. Is that right? In terms of Dharma practice, I was basically sticking the Gwenkaji's method as he taught it in the 10-day courses. So I wasn't doing mantra or visualization, nothing like that. Ah, okay. So I found it good and I felt that I was progressing in that aspect. But the theoretical part was uh, lacking. So I was curious about going back to the original source. And uh, I read up on both Mahayana and Theravada uh, teachings. And I dropped Mahayana because uh, the Theravada, Theravada felt closer to what I was practicing. And I found that, you know, there are a lot of other methods available, even in the Theravada tradition. So I was just curious why the Gwenka method basically chose to stick only to sitting meditation and, you know. Uh-huh basically limiting itself to awareness of the body and the feelings. So I was curious about the other stuff that was in the uh, Buddhist tradition, but I was still hampered by you know, my affiliation with the uh, Gwenka group because you know, every time you apply for a new course, they'd ask, right. do you practice other meditation techniques, stuff like that. So I wanted to be honest. And say, no, I'm sticking to this. Because if you say, I've practiced other meditation techniques, that can lead you to not being accepted in the course. So I, I wanted to continue doing Vipassana meditation under Gwenkanji's group. So I stopped to doing only their technique. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that before my ban, I actually went to Malaysia. I was impressed by uh, Venerable Damavudo the late Venerable Damavudo, right. a Malaysian monk, who was uh, ordained in the Thai forest tradition. No? In my search for original sources of Buddhism, I encountered him, and his teaching was basically uh, concentrated in sutta studies. So I was interested, and a friend of mine, Billy Tan, uh-huh. uh, and his friends, they sponsored me to go to Malaysia. I got a one-month visa, no, actually, I don't need a visa. Uh, I was able to stay there for one month. That was the maximum I was allowed by the Malaysian government. And I was temporarily ordained as a Samanera under uh, Venerable Damavudo. And I don't know if the people in Gwenka, in the Gwenka course took that against me. And they said, oh, you've been practicing other techniques already. And I was trying to explain to him that, you know, under Venerable Damavudo, he doesn't really teach a specific kind of method. Okay. So if you're comfortable with your practice, and I was doing Vipa, uh, Gwenka style meditation there, he'd allow you to do that. Oh. So 
in all honesty, when I told them, I was actually still doing Cuenca style method. Uh, but it still got me banned for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's unfortunate, but the way you're posing it is actually, it was like this event that, that you decided after that to like open yourself up to actually doing other practices. So it ended up being a, in your mind, a fortunate thing, which then implies of course, that, that there was some positive benefits to opening yourself up. So, so you went to Malaysia uh, before you got banned and uh, at least got inspired to, to um, consider the suttas and the Buddhist teaching and its relationship to your practice. And then you said also that you became interested in, in perhaps going to Myanmar. So did you end up going to Myanmar? Yes, uh, I ended up going to Myanmar. <laughs> I asked that question as if I don't know. I actually met you in Myanmar. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, I met Joa online uh-huh. before that. He recommended me to people like you and some other guys. No? Yeah, um, actually, I was still hungry. When I came back from uh, Malaysia, no, I was still looking for a teacher. So I think it was in 19, ah, 2015, I think, there was a group of people who were meeting in a Buddhist center, and they said, you know, we want to uh, hear more about Theravada. And well, we heard that you're a Theravada guy. So I joined their group, and then we, we actually ended up forming the Philippine Theravada Buddhist community. Ah, okay. A fellowship, uh, PTBF. Yeah. So the, the thinking was that if we cannot find a Sangha or uh, a, a Theravada group, let's, let's form our own Theravada group. So I did it actually more for personal reasons rather than to gather members or, you know, for some other reason. Right. Uh, because I felt that having my own community would be very helpful for my practice. Uh, and it was. And, and it was. So uh, from there, I was compelled to take another trip for more in-depth, intensive uh, practice. So I was able to get a three-month religious visa from the Myanmar embassy. And I was hoping to have it extended to six months or more. Uh, I was already prepared to stay much, much longer in Myanmar, actually. What was your specific intention with going there? Like, did you have a a pretty fixed plan? How much preparation did you do? And like, what were you hoping to get out of that? Yeah, um, I wanted to uh, learn from as many uh, teachers as possible because I knew I couldn't stay there uh, very long, maybe uh, just half a month, uh, half a year at the most kind of hopping from one meditation center to the other. So um, I made preparations uh, to visit as many uh, meditation centers as, uh, uh, as possible. Once I was in Myanmar, I discovered that actually it was kind of frowned upon. They did not like that because I think if you register as a meditator, the, the, the center is supposed to take care of you and know where you're going. And if something goes wrong, the Myanmar government will find fault with the center. But before I went there, I didn't know anything about that. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a Filipino. I go there and, you know, learn from different right. teachers and uh, nothing with that. You know? So actually, I had a bit of a problem there when, when I went there. 
that was more to do with responsibility for you as a visitor rather than than practicing other techniques. It wasn't so much about crossing techniques. It was more about just yeah. Yeah, that religious visa, you need a sponsor. So maybe listeners don't know that. But yeah, when you when you get a religious visa, it's underneath a particular monastery or or tradition. And then essentially they're responsible for you. So so to go wandering around Myanmar, but them being responsible for you is a bit, you know, it's a bit of a risk for them in a sense. Yes, yes, yes. I felt that when I was there. They were actually surprised. What? You're going to another center? <laughs> you didn't tell me. I said, and well, I didn't really know. Right. But it was all done in good faith. No? It worked out well in the end. Uh, they didn't mind me going around. It, yeah, as you said, it was more of the responsibility of uh, knowing uh, what I was going to do there and I would not misuse my meditation visa for right. other purposes. So once you told them what what you were doing, they were somewhat supportive of that in a sense, right? As long as as long as you told them what your plans were. Yeah, although I felt that there was this pressure that uh, you know I I was spending only because of my limited stay, I was only spending about two to three weeks per meditation center. Right. And there was this uh, slight, what I would say, uh, probably not pressure, but uh, uh, that encouragement no please stay longer because if you really want to master our method you have to stay longer than two weeks something like that right but i already had other ideas no i wanted to try out the others i can understand why they would want me to stay longer sure but yeah i would have done that if i had a longer uh, <laughs> uh if i was allowed to stay longer no but right i was given a visa extension and getting a visa extension wasn't that easy no oh really you need a uh, yeah. You need a center to sponsor you, stuff like that. Right. And I was a new guy there, no previous record in Myanmar, and I think they were quite skeptical about you know giving a sponsoring a guy. I I might just run off to another center or go to another touristy spot or something, like that, uh, which I never did. In my uh, three months of stay in Myanmar, uh, except for the first day when I visited Shwedagon. I had no time to uh, visit touristy spots. Uh, after leaving one center, I'd go straight to another center. Right. And what, what different traditions did you try? Ah, I first uh, went to Mogok in, I don't know if I pronounce this correctly, Than, Than Lin, something like that. Right. Uh, Mogok. And I stayed there for yeah about two weeks, I think, or three weeks. I, I, I can't remember. That was about Anna. And I was uh, fortunate that I was able to uh, meet with uh, Venerable Asaba because most of the other Mogok teachers uh, can't speak English very well. And it was important for me to have an English-speaking uh, teacher. Sure. Otherwise, I wouldn't. Yeah. And then from Mogok, I went to... Uh, actually, I stayed briefly for a while in uh, Tabarwa. Uh, but uh, the venerable wasn't there. Can I ask you about Mogo? Sure. Yeah. Was that the first time you practiced, like, officially practiced something that was uh, beyond the Goenka tradition? Um. Well, as I said, I I went to Malaysia, and I was uh, exposed to their uh, meditation method there. But 
it was more of um, what I noticed about the, the 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 time method is in my limited experience is they're more flexible in terms of format. Right. They're not as regimented as in the uh, Burmese methods, no. So probably I would say the 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 forest tradition. Yes, I was exposed to that before I went to the Mogok uh, monastery. Right. In Myanmar, Mogok would have been my first uh, stop uh, outside of. Uh, oh yeah, I I actually went to Singapore for a while, and I was exposed there uh, briefly to the Mahasi and the Paok tradition. Oh, okay. But I just went to the centers, you know. Went there in the day and then left again the same day. Uh, so I didn't uh, attend any uh, long retreat. Right. I'm curious to what on the inside, like in your mind and your experience with like having done. How long did you do the Guanca method? I started, I think, 2006, and I went to uh, Malaysia 2016, and then I went to Yangon 2017. Yeah. Right, so it was about ten years. Is that right in in the Guanca yeah. tradition, roughly? Right. And so, yeah. yeah. So, what was your actual like? What was the phenomenon like? What was the actual experience of of starting to actually practice other techniques? What was that like? I mean, I mean, one, there's just perhaps an attachment to a particular style, and then letting go of that. But what was the actual? What was the feeling? What was? Uh, you know, you have a choice to make there too. Is you're trying something else to, to kind of no, no, I'll go back to what I'm doing, or or yes, I need to keep going forward. So, what was the actual internal experience there? Okay, I will have to speak in terms of hindsight. I think after my stay in uh, Myanmar, I felt very uh, grateful for the uh, Guenka group because if I went there fresh, I think I would have had a harder time learning meditation in Myanmar. Right. What in particular do you think? Well, the discipline of sitting. Right. In the Gwenko method, we sit for one hour during group practice, and it's up to you how lo- how much longer you can go. So I already had that. And I was already used to meditating uh, twice a day, or once in the morning and then once before going to bed. So I, I had all that foundation already laid out for me. And I think in the Philippines at the time, I was probably one of the guys who took the most number of Guenka courses uh, in the country. No? Uh-huh. So I was taking courses almost probably two, three times a year. So, yeah. So that laid the foundation for me. So when I went to Mogok, it wasn't that difficult for me. The adjustment was more in terms of cultural. No? Right. Yeah. And... The lectures, I was lucky that during the lectures, uh, you know, I just sat there and meditated. I could not understand Burmese. But uh, in the evening, uh, Venerable Asaba would, would give me a talk. There was one other foreigner there. He was a Korean guy. Uh, he later ordained under the Mogok tradition. So there were only two of us. So we had his full attention. We could ask as many questions as the time allowed. So I was happy with the uh, my stay in, in Mogok, no? The techniques aren't startingly, they're not so different uh, in a way. Uh, it was easy for me to adjust my my practice. You know, I went there with, a, with an open mind. No? So, yeah, after a few days, I got the hang of it. 
So it wasn't really that difficult adjusting my, my, my technique. Where did you go from Mogok? Uh, from Mogok, I tried to go to uh, Tabarwa because uh, that was uh, a little closer. Right. We've had a few, we've had a few podcasts with uh, Mogok practitioners and a little bit from Tabawa Sayadaw as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I stayed there for only three days, I think. The most meaningful experience for me there was going out on arms round and then helping the sick. They have a hospital there, cleaning up after them, moving them around, stuff like that. Right. And there was a morgue there. Every day somebody would be, a dead person would be there. So I'd go there, meditate a bit. So that was it. I attended their uh, meditation session in the evening, but I found out that there isn't a particular, you know, uh, Tabarwa uh, method. So I said, okay, I'll come back to this place after I've done the other centers. No? I was uh, expecting that uh, my visa would be uh, extended, but it didn't happen. No? When I came back to the Philippines, I told them that, you know, go to Tabarwa, even if they don't have any particular uh, meditation method, not like, you know, Mahasi, right. Renka, right? But I said, this is where you can really test if your meditation is working or not. Just imagine cleaning up after an old person who has soiled his bed, no? move them around, see dead people. So this will uh, open your mind and your heart and become honest if you're hiding behind your meditation or you're really using it to uh, improve yourself and deal with even the nasty stuff in life. Right. The Thabawa practice is more about, it's, it's, it's awareness for sure, but it's awareness while serving and continuing to serve. And uh, yes. it's, it's a different scale of practice. It's not about sitting on the cushion so much. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah it's actually, that is the practice in a sense, is caring for people and, and, and what we learn about life and about the, about the Dhamma. We see the Dhamma through these engagements. Yeah. And, and another thing in uh, the Tabarwa uh, Center is that you get to meet other people, other volunteers from other countries. Right. And it's also practice to be able to adjust to them, uh, harmonize your expectations, work as a team. No? So, right. yeah, it, yeah it, it's good preparation for going back to you know, daily life, no? how you interact with other people. Mm. And where did you go after Tabarwa? Ah, I was always uh, uh, curious about meta meditation because I felt when I was in the Gwenka group, I felt that you know this is one aspect that seems to be missing for me personally. So this is not a statement to judge the whole group. No, for me, I felt that I wasn't doing enough meta meditation. So I looked up uh, in the internet before going to Myanmar to see which group was uh, teaching meta, and I uh, discovered that there's a center in Yangon. It's Chan Myai. It's a, it's a branch of Mahasi. Right. So I went there and I spent three weeks there under uh, Venerable Usobita. The first two weeks, I was doing metta. Only metta meditation. And then, that's what I told them. I said, I just want to do metta meditation for two weeks then, and then I'm off. But somehow I thought that, okay, I'm already here. I might as well uh, spend one more week practicing there, learning there the, the, the Mahasi method. 
So I spent another week, and they were happy about me extending, and they, you know, they kind of, <laughs> of uh, wanted me to stay longer. Right. But you know, I already had talked to another center, and I said I was going that day. So yeah, I I, I did the meta meditation, and it was it was very interesting. I think it I learned a lot about the Burmese attitude about life. Yeah, how they look at things. Yeah, it it was a totally different experience. What was different here was that um, I was used to sitting meditation because of the Gwenka method. They uh, basically the, the the only formal instructions are uh, revolve around sitting meditation. But in Chiang Mai, they have a lot of moving meditation, walking meditation, standing meditation, and I. I kind of underestimated the value of this when I was with the Gwenka group. But when I learned this from the Mahasi group, I suddenly realized that, wow, this is a uh, valuable experience. And yeah, I learned a lot about that. Walking slowly and observing how how we move. Great. So the Moga, that wasn't there in Mogok either. So that was your first experience with walking meditation. In Mogok, yeah, we did uh, mostly sitting meditation. And you know, now I'm reminded about a monk I, I I I saw there. There was this young monk, and you know, by tradition they sit in front, right? So we can always see them in front of us when we meditate. And in the monk tradition, we have uh, I can't remember. I think it's either one or one and a half hours. I think it's one hour of sitting, and then we have a break. And the walking meditation is supposed to be done, you know, on your own, so you can go to the rooftop, walk, walk around, you know, and then come back for another. Uh, one hour of sitting. So I saw this young monk, didn't pay much attention to him at first because, of course, I was focusing on my own uh, practice. Right. But after a few days, I, I noticed that, hey, this young monk, when when I enter the room, he's already sitting there. When I leave for a break or for that one hour walking meditation, come back, he's still sitting there. And then when we do another break and come back, he's still sitting there. So he's been sitting there for more than uh, about five hours. <laughs> right. And then one time I decided, okay, I won't go out first with the others. I'll see what this monk is going to do. And I stayed in the uh, meditation hall for a bit, observing if, if he was taking a break or not. And he was just sitting there. So I was just assuming that, you know, this monk is not moving for five hours. And, you know, it's so inspiring to see monks like that. You know? So, Unfortunately, I was not able to talk to him because um, he was not from that center. I don't know if he was ordained under the Mogok tradition. I wanted to find out where he learned his technique, but you know, he that he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Burmese, and we had limited uh, contact anyway. So yeah, that was etched in my memory. That monk, that young monk, sitting for five hours in the meditation hall. <laughs> So, yeah, that that's different than than being in other countries, right? When you're in a predominantly Buddhist country like Sri Lanka or Myanmar or Thailand, you you see the monastics. So that was uh, let me say it this way: How was that? Like, the, what was the difference between being outside of a Buddhist country practicing Theravada Buddhism versus being in a country that's that's predominantly Theravada Buddhist? You know, when I was uh, still a Catholic, I could see, I encountered a lot of religious people. Many of them actually were uh, female monastics, you know, sisters. And they had this level of uh, 
calm and peace in them. Uh, that's so outwardly, should I say. And if I just change their robes, I see the same quality of peace and calmness of uh, these people, uh, whether in a Catholic place or in a Buddhist community. I think, I think uh, the place where I went, the places I went to in Myanmar were, I don't know how typical they are of uh, the Myanmar society as a whole. Right, right. Yeah, so I would think that they like the Catholic retreat centers here, no? It's totally different when you step out of the, 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 the churches, no? You see all kinds of people already, no? The shock was more of cultural, actually, but in terms of the reverence, the calmness, I think I encountered this before in other uh, religious settings, but it was different in a Buddhist setting, of course, because uh, now my, my mind and my heart is you know, directed towards the Buddha Dharma. Right. What I would say is that, actually, it surprised me that the Burmese setting isn't as quiet as I thought it would be. <laughs> it was, especially comparing it with the uh, forest monastery of uh, Venerable Dhammavuda in Malaysia. Right. No? Yeah. I could hear, for example, in the Mogok Center, the other temples uh, chanting. So <laughs> you, have, you have chanting over the uh, loudspeakers. Right. Uh, early morning, I think that was around 4.30. And then a few seconds later, you can hear the dogs howling in unison as if they're also chanting. So it was kind of weird that, you know, I thought this place would be quiet. But, you know, when everyone wakes up and they start chanting, it's, it makes quite a noise also. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Buddhist, so I can appreciate the, the chants. I, I don't take it as noise pollution. <laughs> but it right, was right. actually quite loud. No? I mean loudspeakers i mean yeah <laughs> it would make it it would make a sound yeah yeah and then so you're you're chan mie practicing meta for a couple of weeks and then you tried the, the mahasi method including walking meditation for a week is that right yeah. and then right and then yeah and then what happened from there i took my leave it was uh, very amicable and i was very grateful to not just to usobita sayadaw but uh, to the whole staff there. Uh, it was a very nice place. And I think Tony Tony also went there to to to, to meditate. No? So, yeah. From there, I thought of going to uh, something that would be, uh, in my mind, quite intensive. So, I went to Kabaaye Sunlun Monastery and I met Uwara Sayadaw. And when I reached that place, actually, I got worried because uh, they said, oh, do you have a letter? I said, yes. I communicated with uh, Sayadaw uh, a few months ago, and he accepted me. Uh-huh. And they said, when did you come? And I said, oh, uh, more than a month ago. I said, oh, you were supposed to come here earlier. And then I noticed that, oops, there must be something here, some problem with the government regulations or something, you know? Right. The problem was that Uwara Sayada wasn't at the at the monastery at the time. Ah, okay. So somebody called him up, and you know, I I thought I was going to be turned away, and there was one uh, 
American meditator there. And I think she helped, they, they helped them to understand my situation. And we were talking back and forth for a few times. And then finally, the monk there said, okay, you can stay. So I was quite relieved and happy that I could stay. Ah, Sunlun Monastery is another experience. Wow. <laughs> I don't think anything could have prepared me for that. <laughs> Sorry, Mon. What you said this is going to be more intense. So what's that all about? Okay. It, it really has to be experienced to be understood, you know. It's, it, it was very different from what you read. But you get an idea. So the method was uh, developed by uh, Sunlun Sayadaw. Okay, that's what I was wondering. This is the Sunlun method then? Yes, the Sunlun method. Yeah. Well, he's supposed to be an Arahant, as was his disciple. No? Uh, so interesting. He was a former farmer, and much of, the, much of what he practiced in meditation was self-taught. No? He developed it after learning uh, the basic stuff from some teachers. And then he developed it on his own. So maybe... I think he was reading Lady Sayadaw, actually. I read his biography. I think that's what it said. I think he read about it or heard about it. I don't know if he was a direct disciple of uh, Lady Sayadaw. The method he developed, or that was what it is, was being taught at the centers right now, is that uh, we have two hours sitting. And uh, in that two hours... The first part is spent on hard, fast breathing. So that part was quite difficult for me in the beginning. How long was that? How, how long do you do that for? One hour. One hour of hard breathing. Wow, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, at first, I had a hard time there. But then when I got the hang of it, I found out that, you know, it, it does energize me. And it does help me uh, focus more later on. And then the technique that there is after um, the one-hour hard breathing, kind of just allow your breath to normalize, and then you let go of uh, looking at the breath and start observing sensation in the body. So the focus is more on watching strong sensations in the body. Usually it's the most painful part of the body. And uh, watching it arise and stay and if you can, if it will go away, then you know, observe it going away. So yeah, it was done without sitting on a cushion. The other centers they provided us with mats and. Uh, so you're right it, on the floor. Straw mat. That's about oh, it. Okay. Probably not to get your butt dirty, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even without, even with the straw mat, you could feel the hard floor underneath. You know? Right. So yeah. So that was quite an experience for me because I have always sat on a cushion so that my knees are always lower than my hips. I think that's a good meditation meditation position for me. But in Sun Lun, you know, I had to adjust my position. And the funny thing was that after a while, after several minutes, I feel like moving and they strongly, strongly encourage us not to move but you know sometimes i do move and actually the the pain gets worse when when i move now <laughs> in uh sun Lun, there's a monk who goes around i think something like you know in a zen monastery there's there's one monk who goes around supervising the <laughs> meditator so yeah in sun Lun, the moment you start moving you know then there's this 
voice that comes from behind tells you don't stop ah uh, don't move don't stop meditating <laughs> keep going something like that yeah so uh, of course in the beginning first few days I wasn't able to sit for two hours straight but uh, after about ten days I was able to you know sit two hours and yeah I I was able to reach uh, some a deeper state of samadhi when I was there well, I had uh, yeah yeah I. Had, I had good experiences there in terms of uh, anatta, uh, anicca, dukkha, especially the anatta part. You know, you know uh, sitting for two hours with so much pain, and I tried all sorts of tricks that I learned, and uh, in based on my experience in the other methods, uh, and none of them actually worked. <laughs> Labeling worked. Noting didn't work. Going back to the breath didn't work. The pain was always there. Pain, 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 pain. And then, I don't know. One one time, it just clicked. Pop! You know, I was feeling so much pain. And then suddenly, something disappeared. And I said, no, the pain is still there. But, you know, that feeling part of me was, yeah, there's pain. But I don't know how to explain it. Uh, I can experience the pain, but because I was, I was no longer there. This this I, uh-huh. it's just like I was just observing the pain, you know, as it, as it was, and you know, uh, I was able to, to to do the two hours just observing the pain. The pain didn't really go away. It was still intensive, but it wasn't affecting me as much anymore. Yeah, so that was a very valuable experience for me. Wow. Okay. Yeah, okay, so Sun Lun, and then what's next? Ah, from Sun Lun, I purposely wanted to try out another kind of laid-back, from from what I've read, laid-back kind of meditation, and that's where I met you. I went to Shui Umin Monastery. <laughs> Is that the <laughs> reputation? It's a, the laid-back technique? Well, from what I gather, uh, it's kind of unstructured, and uh, ah, okay. instead of going to this long, strong samadhi, it's more of the sati part. Right, especially compared to uh, what you had just come from. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when I was there, Uta Janiya Sayada was, you know, uh, he was a, I think he was a great teacher, you know. Uh, he explained uh, many things to me. And I kind of liked the way uh, he stressed that uh, it's not so much about the postures, it's not so much about sitting long, it's more about observing your mind and knowing what's going on there and then you know it kind of puts the icing in on the cake no learning all about the methods because in the other methods yeah you tend to become too focused on body sensations or on the breath but how does this affect your mind in in, in shui umin i appreciated how one can be aware of the breath or body sensation and still observe what is happening in the mind. Because, for example, I can be sitting for a long time, not moving, uh, just tolerating the pain, but is that developing my mind? What kind of mind am I developing? Am I becoming more resilient or am I just hardening my mind? Right. You know? So, yeah, a body may, may be able to tolerate the pain one hour, two hours of sitting, but the effect is that without knowing it, 
one has already also hardened the mind and when one has hardened the mind the heart and the personality also becomes hard so again without naming any groups sometimes i look at some senior meditators who don't practice enough metta and who don't observe the mind enough or deeply enough yeah they can sit for long but uh somehow they they've hardened their personality they're they're less cheerful they're too serious about their practice they're too serious about themselves and i say there's something missing about their practice and i'm very grateful to shwe umin for you know giving me this technique where i can observe my mind Right, and then uh, to continue the Dhamma tour, what came after Shwayumin? Ah, okay, the last stop. <laughs> the grand Dhamma tour. <laughs> yeah, because I came from the Gwenka tradition, right? Uh, which which actually labels itself as teaching Vipassana meditation in the tradition of Seaji Ubakin. Uh-huh. So where else would I go but to the International Meditation Center? Aha, uh-huh, IMC, uh-huh. great. Yeah. So I went there, took a 10-day course. And the teacher there, uh, a layman, I think, yeah, he was the only uh, lay teacher I had in uh, Burma in, in my tour. No? Ah, no, no, no. The one in Tabarwa was a lay person. Right. But yeah, I, I didn't stay too long there. But anyway, Sayaji Ukinzao was the last living student of Sayaji Ubakin. So he still remembers uh, what Sayaji Ubakin was teaching and how he taught it. Right. And I'm very grateful for him. The funny thing was that when I was at that center, some Burmese people greeted me. And I recognized them as the same guys uh, I was sitting beside with in the Mogok Center. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So apparently, there's no such thing as if you practice other styles, you cannot come here to the center. No? Right, right. Uh, IMC. No? Uh, so that was one thing that puzzled me again about the Guenka group. No? So here in Burma, it's taken for granted that the people who go to the centers, they you know they cross-train, so, so to speak. No? They go around different centers. No? There were a few differences, actually. Not major differences between the IMC should I say method, and what I learned in the Gwenka group. Like the counting of the breath. Uh, Sayaji told me that, you know, if you have a hard time focusing, you can count your breath. In the Gwenka method, they said, no, you're, you're not supposed to count the breath. So minor details like that. Right. And then on the fourth day of uh, the 10-day retreat, in the Gwenka method, they have what is called the Aditan, uh, sitting meditation, where you sit for more than an hour. And you try not to move. Huh? It is strongly, strongly encouraged in that tradition where I learned it from, uh, not to move. But in the IMC, it's they're more flexible. No? If you have to move, you move. Oh, okay. <laughs> but of course, they 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 say uh, try to sit without moving. But a student asks, "I can't, I can't move." Okay, then you move. Just as simple as that. There's no. Uh, strong encouragement to say not don't move just focus on your breath and stuff like that they give you tricks in the Gwenka method how to stand aditan but not like that in the imc right 
So yeah, it was fun. Again, uh, the the teacher actually mentioned some some things to me. Uh, yeah, I'll just share it here. He said, you know, those meditators who come here to practice the body scanning, they have a hard time doing the scanning because they're used to observing strong sensations only. So they they find it harder to catch the uh, subtler sensations, the ones that are below the surface or underneath the strong sensations. That's what he said. So for that, I am very grateful for uh, Sayaji Ubakin's uh, method, learning how to catch and observe even the very subtle sensations. Yeah, Because, for example, in the other methods where there are very, very strong sensations, your mind tends to gravitate towards just observing those. Sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, so the, the grand Dhamma tour of Myanmar wraps up, and then you head back to the Philippines, or is that right? Yeah, I wanted to stay uh, longer, but I couldn't find a sponsor. Apparently, you need a sponsor. So I wasn't able to go back to Tabarwa, unfortunately. So I had to yeah, go back after IMC. Right. What was it you brought back? What did you do with all this experience, knowledge, uh, perspective, like how did that change you? And then how did you, you were already involved in some groups. Like what was your intention as far as sharing that with people? And then what shape did that take? Well, of course, I first uh, shared my experiences with my own group, the Philippine Theravada Buddhist Fellowship. And I encouraged them to, I don't know, to go to Myanmar. They said, let's go to Myanmar together. Uh, there's this guy, Joa, and uh, he can help us uh, organize that tour. Well, nothing has happened about that yet, but uh, we're still open to doing that in the future. So uh, I went to uh, another group, the Theosophical Society of the Philippines. I told them I can share my experiences with uh, you guys. And yeah, they allowed me to be a guest speaker. What other groups? I went to yeah, I went to as many groups as, as possible, and then I uh, posted on Facebook uh, three groups with pictures, uh, uh, encouraging people to you know uh, take up meditation, and if they can go to Myanmar, yeah, do the same thing. I tried to contact other Filipinos also, but you know there are very very few Filipinos who have been to Myanmar to meditate. I can probably only a handful of us who have been to Myanmar. I think it would be good if more Filipinos would uh, be able to take up meditation and they need to go abroad. They can always go to Myanmar. Well, not just Myanmar, maybe Thailand and some other countries. Right. Well, in that sense, you're the man. You're the one with the experience, right? You're the person. You have direct experience with these other traditions and techniques. And in that sense... uh, are you a link for people? Like, do you make yourself available uh, for people that are seeking that kind of information? Well, we used to have uh, regular uh, weekly, actually, weekly sessions, meditation sessions, uh, a bit of Dharma sharing. No? We're happy if we can already get 10 participants. No? And actually, I look at the other meditation groups. They're happy if they can get 25 to 30 regular attendees in their meditation session. Right. That's how the uh, participation is in the Philippines. Huh? It's a very strong... Uh, even the attendees in my group, uh, not all of them are Buddhist, actually. 
we we're open to all all kinds of people, atheists, non-Buddhists. No? There's no issue there. Right. They can always come and go. I don't think of them in, as members. I think of them more as attendees. No? But for the past six or seven months, we haven't been uh, holding sessions because of this COVID. Technically, the, uh, the 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 city, Metro Manila, is still under quarantine. So we have uh, travel bans, travel restrictions. Right, Some right. people they go to the stores or shop or go to the market if they have a quarantine pass. So yeah, I have problems with my Zoom. Uh, so many people now are working at home. So the internet here is kind of choppy at times. So instead of organizing my own virtual sessions, I just share other links. I miss group. I link her up and the other meditation groups. They have better internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about on a personal level, like this experience of going to Myanmar, how has it shaped your own understanding, your practice, your overall view of, of the path? Like, what was that? What did you bring home for yourself? Ah, I think it really deepened my commitment to the Dharma. There was a time when I was telling my friends no, in the martial arts that, you know, this path of meditation has helped me a lot, but it did something bad to my martial art practice. I'm not so involved in it anymore, stuff like that. No? Uh-huh. But just recently, maybe because of the COVID and I have more time in my hands, no, uh, I've been going back to martial arts practice and I have friends who, you know, just to keep fit, uh, they do martial arts practice. And I do my martial arts now, I would say, with more equanimity. And the weird thing is, I'm beginning to do my martial arts with more passion, but without the anger, without striving to be violent, you know? Yeah, meditation has uh, helped me put more zest in other things in my life, not directly connected to Buddhism. Even in my, my martial arts, I just changed my perspective. The perspective has become more meaningful, more compassionate. Uh, I used to sit one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening. And for me, that was meditation. That was a good meditation practice. But after coming back from Myanmar, especially after learning from Shui Umin, it can be one hour, it can be 45 minutes, it can be any time of the day. And for me, that would be good meditation now, instead of uh, limiting it to you know, uh, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening. So uh, I can practice meditation continuously. When driving the car, I can practice meditation. When I'm washing dishes, I can practice meditation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm beginning to see more about it, see more of the defilements of my mind. And you know, it's good because when someone sits in... Meditation, it can become a kind of a shield. It can be a kind of cover. But if you cannot meditate with your eyes open doing daily chores, I feel that that, that meditation is shallow. It's too compartmentalized. Meditation has to be integrated into everyday living. I'm still thinking of a time when, you know, there's a Theravada center in the Philippines. There's none yet. The environment given by a meditation center or a monastery is so different from 
a part-time yoga club or something. No? Really, really different. So, yeah, uh, my head is sometimes filled with uh, dreams about, you know, putting up a center with friends and we can have retreats there, invite teachers from other countries probably, make them stay here, and then it would be a center where we can organize trips going to uh, Burma, India, Thailand, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, anywhere there's a uh, Dharma uh, available. Of course, there's also U.S. Many people who do meditation here have been to the U.S. Uh, yeah, I follow up on what's happening in the Western Buddhist communities. Uh-huh. But I feel that they don't quite understand the Filipino culture. And that is why I also set up the PTDF instead of affiliating myself with an international group. No? Because who knows the Filipino mindset more than Filipino. And right. Yeah. So PTDF will be more flexible, more Filipino-oriented. Uh, that's my vision for, for the group. Sahatu. Yeah. <laughs> so... So you went to Myanmar and, and tried a bunch of different techniques. And it doesn't sound necessarily that like you were going there to try to just pick one and choose the best one. But So what's your attitude overall towards like technique as far as like one technique or the experience wasn't so much about trying to find and choose the best one. So how has having tried several techniques affected your overall view of technique in general? Okay, I, I, I tell people that I've shared my experience in Myanmar this. Uh, there's no single technique that is the best for a person. I think the best way to do it is to uh, keep an open mind, experiment, and then as much as possible, try to get interested in studying the suttas. Because in the suttas, uh, one can see how the Buddha and his disciples did their practice. So even in the suttas, there were different people who were Attracted to Mughalyana, to um, Sariputta, you know. Right, right. So, you know, different t- temperaments are attracted to different kinds of teachers and different kinds of methods. You know? I wouldn't even rule out uh, visualization because even the suttas, the, the Buddha gave a golden lotus to one disciple, right? Who couldn't meditate right. on death meditation, for example. So, there isn't a single uh, best technique. So I think that is the most valuable insight I can share to my friends. Uh, not to limit themselves to only one technique. Not to uh, buy in this idea that there is a single pure pristine technique. No? All teachers are teaching their version of their dharma. And the complete instructions are not found in one tradition, but in the suttas, basically. So in, in my group, I, I encourage people to study the suttas also. Personally, my practice would involve, the first part of my practice would involve hard breathing. I think I, I appreciated that from the Sunlun method. Uh-huh. You kept that from Sunlun, right? I kept that from Sunlun. Uh-huh. But I don't do it for one hour. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. I spend only basically one hour uh, regular. Uh, sometimes I don't time myself. Right. But usually I have a timer, so I know when to, to end. Oh, yeah. I, I neglected to say this, no? I'm no longer banned in the Gwenka tradition. I was quite open to them. I told them I went to Burma. I, I studied technique, tak, 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 tak. And surprisingly, they, they accepted my application early this year, just before the COVID. 
epidemic broke out. So I was in a Gwenka course sometime this February. And then on the 10th day, just before the course ended, we had an emergency meeting and all the students were told that we had to go home because uh, there was a lockdown in Manila. So, uh, yeah, that was it. So now, uh, I still join their uh, virtual classes online. Okay. So I sit with group. No problem. When I'm with the Gwenka group, I respect the tradition. I only do the Gwenka method. When I practice by myself, I incorporate what I need to do, you know, based on how I need to develop my mind. Sometimes I even do death meditation you know, uh, from the Thai forest tradition, yeah, stuff like that. So I'm very grateful for all these practices. Well, we're grateful to have you share the story with us, Mon. It's been a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you also, Zach, for inviting me here. I hope more Filipinos will be inspired to go to Myanmar and to learn meditation there from the masters. Hope that Theravadan Center idea comes to fruition. Uh, I talked with Tony about this years ago. Uh, maybe it's time to uh, discuss this again with him. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. One of the beautiful things about Burmese monasteries is that everyone can practice selfless giving. I've seen poor families give just one spoonful of rice to a communal alms bowl, and I've seen still poorer families wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to collect flowers and offer at the Buddha shrine. As our Insight Myanmar podcast runs on the power of donation, we also greatly appreciate any amount of support to keep our engine going. Like the morning alms of rice or flowers, if you'd like to give a monthly donation through Patreon, that continued support will allow us to continue making these episodes available to you. If even a small fraction of our listeners donated the equivalent of a cup of coffee as a monthly pledge, we could be funded well into the future. If your income is less stable, we greatly appreciate one-time donations as well. If you would like to join in our mission to share the Dhamma from the Golden Land more widely, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to sustaining the programming. You can give right on our website via credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation or through PayPal by going to paypal.me slash insightmyanmar. We also take donation through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. In all cases, Simply search Insight Myanmar on each platform and you'll find our account. Alternatively, you can also visit our website for specific links to any of these respective accounts, or feel free to email us at info at insightmyanmar.org. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, spelled I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you for your kind consideration. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information at www.insightmyanmar.org. That's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure that it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in our discussions on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name of Insight Myanmar. And if you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at burmadama at gmail.com. That's B-U-R-M-A-D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com, and we're also active on Wheel. If you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know, and we can share that forum here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharnay. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. Dragos Bandita and Andre Francois produce original artwork. And a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful personal stories. Finally, we are immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note, as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there is a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, and excerpts of any episodes. It is also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we are very open to collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. As you know, our podcasts are 100% listener-supported. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go on the GoFundMe site and search Insight Myanmar to find our campaign. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks, and see you next show.